Good morning, everyone. So the first reading is coming from Psalm 51, verses 10 to 17. Whenever I read this psalm, I always want to sing the first two verses. <laughs> Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. And the second reading comes from Romans 12, verses 1 to 8. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. And if it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. If you've uh, ever read through the letter to Romans before, from the beginning, it's a bit like admiring a muscle car. I think I've got a picture of one here that you can see up there. Working your way through Romans, you know, from the beginning right through to chapter 11, it's kind of like you're walking around the car, you're appreciating it. Maybe you stand for a, a bit with the bonnet up and you're looking at the, the huge V8 engine that powers this thing. Maybe, you know, you, you get to sit in the car a little bit, smell the leather seats, turn it over, give it a few revs in the driveway while it's sitting there. That's kind of what reading through Romans chapters 1 to 11 is like. It feels a bit like you're appreciating something, but you're doing it all while it's there safely parked in the driveway. But you get to chapter 12, which today we're just jumping in on, straight at this point, and suddenly it's like Paul says to you, get in. It's time for you to take this baby for a bit of a ride. Let's see what it can do and head up to the hills via Gorge Road. And then he throws you the keys and he says, oh, and you're driving. Now, for some rev heads here, you know, that kind of fills you with a sense of excitement. And you're like, yeah, let's do it. 
But for safe and kind of boring Volvo drivers like me, it, it also fills you with a sense of dread, sense of ter- terror. You're kind of like, how am I going to take this beautiful car for a drive and not kill myself and half a dozen cyclists in the process? Well, this section that we're just parachuting into today in this letter to Romans, this section actually runs right through to the end of the letter almost. And it's all about taking the car out on the open road and letting it rip. It's all about seeing the the power of the gospel at work in our day-to-day lives. That's that's what this part of the letter is about. And yeah, there's some corners that that we are in a life driven by the gospel. There's some corners that you get to that are actually a little bit terrifying but also thrilling at the same time. Like next week, you're going to have um, Mark Curran from Modbury here. And um, Mark, you'll come across this one, this corner, with him, where Paul writes, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. The gospel kind of sends us careening around that corner, and that's a little bit scary. But at the same time, it's, it's actually quite thrilling. And then there's another one. The gospel drives us to things like this. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Again, a bit scary, but thrilling. We come to corner after corner where we see that the gospel makes a huge difference to our lives. It powers a life that's so different to what it would otherwise have been. And chapter 12 and onwards is Paul saying to us, drop the clutch, hit the accelerator, hold on to the steering wheel and see for yourself the life that God has in store. Now I'm not sure why um, Paul, when he wrote the letter, didn't choose to use a muscle car as the illustration. I guess not everyone's into cars or something like that. Instead, he he illustrates his point by talking about sacrifice. Have a look at verse 1. He writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So after 11 chapters of of seeing just what Jesus has done for us at the cross, that's that's what... You see in the first 11 chapters of Romans, 11 chapters of seeing the plan of God to make us his people, even though we don't deserve it. After all that, having seen the the beauty of the power of God's mercy, what should I do? What should you do? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. If you've been saved by God, brought into his plans, And into his family as a free gift, what should you do? Offer your body as a living sacrifice. And this isn't as some kind of reluctant duty. You know, this isn't God's debt repayment scheme going on here. This is actually still God's mercy at work. Because God's mercy is, is not... Simply us being saved from the penalty of sin, like that's part of it. But his mercy also saves us from the power of sin. He doesn't just forgive. He also drives the way we live. That's his mercy too. When I was on um, holidays in Robe 
at the start of this year in January. I was swimming at the beach, um, town beach, if you've ever been to Robe, there's the pontoon out there, and I was kind of almost out towards the pontoon swimming along, and I saw this fly struggling in the water, just floating by. It was really weird, just out there for no reason. So I saved it. I sort of picked it up, and I, I put it on my shoulder, and then I went back into the shore. Kathy, my wife, she thought it was really weird. I thought it was heroic. But then at that point, one of the kids actually called me back into the water. And so what I did with the fly, which was still sort of not doing too well after its ordeal, wasn't flying, I just put it down on the sand and I'm pretty sure one of the next waves would have washed it back in. Now my mercy to that fly, it didn't stretch very far. I saved it, but then it was on its own. And it's a really stupid example, but sometimes... uh, we treat God's mercy like that. It's not like that. His mercy goes on so that he saves us into a way of living, saves us into a way of living where he draws us ever closer to be who he has saved us to be. That's his mercy at work. But notice, it really is his mercy that goes on working in us, but at the same time, we don't sit back in this. His mercy propels us to action. We offer ourselves as sacrifices. You know, like driving a car. It's not our power that throws us off Gorge Hill Road. It's the engine that does that. But if you don't hit the accelerator, you're not even leaving the driveway. So Paul tells us, having seen God's mercy, what we should do in response is clear and it's hugely important We should offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Now, what does this mean? The people of God before Jesus came offered sacrifices to God. But earlier in Romans in the letter, in chapter 325, um, Paul writes, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. If you read through Romans, you see there's nothing more at all that we need to add to make us right with God. There's nothing more, in fact, we could add. And in fact, even just thinking that we could add something is actually saying to God that we think Jesus is an inadequate sacrifice. You know, it's kind of like saying, I'm just going to top up your effort, God, because I'm just going to give my contribution because you haven't done enough. That's not the kind of sacrifice that Paul is urging us to make here in chapter 12. There's no way you could conclude that when you've been reading this letter. This isn't about repairing our relationship with God at all. This is about responding to God as someone whose relationship with him is already repaired for good. It's about us having died to living for ourselves in Jesus. And so now we live for him. So look at how we're to understand this sacrifice. Verse 1, it's our bodies that are offered, which means we offer our entire selves in this world, our bodies. We offer ourselves physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. It's a living sacrifice that we offer, which means it's not a once-off sacrifice. You've probably heard this expression Uh, Quite often, you know, the problem with living sacrifices is they want to crawl off the altar. It's, It's an ongoing sacrifice. It's challenging. It's an ongoing way of living. 
We get more details of what this looks like. Paul writes, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Holy means set apart, distinct. And our distinction is that we're to offer our entire lives to please God. And then Paul says, this way of living is your true and proper worship. Most of our um, friends, family even, uh, most humans throughout history, they kind of work off this principle. If they believe in God, they work off this principle. I'll worship God so that he'll bless my plans. Have you noticed that? That's, that's pretty much the principle that all humans work off. I'll worship God so he'll bless my plans. We actually drift to it massively in our own hearts as well. But God flips this entirely on its head. We don't worship him so that he'll then bless us and our plans. We worship him because he's already blessed us beyond what we could ever imagine or dream. And he's joined us to his plans. It's in view of his mercies that we worship. And you can can you see what this this true and proper worship of God looks like from this passage? It, it looks like all of life worship. Every time we live in response to God's mercy, wherever we are, that is worshiping God. What we see if we keep reading Romans, uh, keep reading onwards, is some examples of what this true and proper worship looks like in everyday life. But just before we get to the examples, actually, the specific examples, Paul gives us a, a bit more of an understanding of, of what's needed if we're going to be able to worship like this. So look at verse 2. He says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not conform, but be transformed. If, if we're going to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, it will mean first not conforming to the pattern of this world. The idea here is that the idea here is that this world has, has got a way of thinking and living that actually puts enormous pressure on us to conform. And sometimes that pressure is just so obvious. You know, think of the pressure to conform around sexuality. It's just so obvious in our world. It was obvious in their world back then. It's just such an obvious pressure in our world now. And you see this in, in chapter 1 in Romans. But also there are more subtle Subtle ways that we experience this pressure to conform. Ways we might miss, actually. Like also in chapter 1, verse 31, where Paul is talking about these kind of things. Have a look at it. Paul wrote that people who reject God have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death... They not only continue to do these very things, and here you see the pressure to conform, but they also approve of those who practice them. If you, you see that verse, it means that the, the conforming to the pattern of this world also means things like lack of fidelity, lack of faithfulness, lack of love, lack of mercy. We need to be careful not to make the mistake of thinking that our non-conforming 
automatically equals offering our bodies as living sacrifices. Now, sometimes Christians are non-conformists in some extremely worldly ways. They're difficult, objectionable. They're cold and unloving without mercy. And they're not at all like their father in heaven. They're non-conformists because they fight against absolutely everyone and everything. Have you met Christians like this or have you felt a bit like this yourself at times? But really that kind of non-conformity doesn't go anywhere near deep enough because really that's just conforming to the pattern of this world, being unloving, unmerciful, ignorant. If we're going to be able to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, it will first mean not conforming to the pattern of this world. But notice in verse 2 how this happens. In verse 2, we are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Non-conformity is only part of it. Being transformed by the renewing of your mind is actually key. But again, what exactly does that mean? Like Renewing your mind, it kind of sounds a little bit Zen Buddhist, don't you reckon? Renew your mind. But Paul's not talking about you know meditation here or, or a spiritual ritual. You can see what he's talking about when you see the result that it brings to your life. He goes on to say, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. See what he's saying? A mind being renewed is about seeing the world God's way. A mind being renewed is a mind being aligned again and again with God, with what God has revealed his will to be. And the idea of, of, of testing and approving God's will is, is the idea of agreeing with God. Not just a kind of mental agreement but agreeing in a way that embraces what God actually wants for our lives. If you've got children or you know, you've, you've thought about having children, what do you want for them? I actually do want my children to approve my will. Not, you know, even though I'm a flawed, deeply flawed person, I still want that. Because when I tell them, you know, I tell my kids, truth matters. Compassion matters. I actually really want them to embrace that. And I don't want them to just tell the truth because that's what I want them to do. I want them to agree with me in the end that the truth is so valuable. I want them to ag agree with me that compassion is, is, a, is a beautiful thing. I want them to embrace what's good for themselves with me I don't want them to just embrace the appearance of, of being nice people. Well, that's the idea here. That by not conforming, but by God's transforming, by a renewed mind set on God's plan, set on his character, on, on his way of life, his word, that we'll fully embrace God's will and we'll joyfully offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. So what does this look like? Well, the good news for me is that's Mark's job next week when he's here. 
because Paul goes on, to, he, he gives lots and lots of practical examples from here on in, in Romans. But actually, this week, we do get, we do get one practical example, and we're, we're going to have a quick look at it in just a moment. But just before we do that, have we really got this? Have you got what God is saying to you here? At um, Trinity Church Modbury, we spent nearly a year in 2021 on and off looking over the, the first 11 chapters of Romans. And so we spent really a year kind of walking around, admiring, appreciating God's grace, his mercy. And it would have been a tragedy if having done that as a church, if, if we missed that the mercy of God takes us somewhere, drives us somewhere. It would have been a tragedy if... if, if we missed that it means that we need to offer our lives to God in this broken world at all times, in all places. If we had have missed that we can't conform any longer to this broken world, but need to be transformed. Now, obviously, it would have been a tragedy for us to miss that, but it's a tragedy for any believer to miss that. My work, my parenting, my spare time, my sex life, my money, in view of God's mercy, that they're all to be lived out joyfully, beautifully, as a sacrifice to God. Have we got that? You know, when we when we finish the service, is is that something that we'll hold on to when we're at work tomorrow or at school or coming home from work on Wednesday or school on Wednesday? Will we be thinking, this is for you, God. This is my worship. And it's all because of your mercy. See, if we've got that clear, and, and really only once we've got that clear, are we ready to kind of start to see some of the examples of what this worship looks like in day-to-day life? But I've got to say, the first example is maybe not what I would have expected. Look at verse 3, where Paul goes on to give the first example. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. So in view of the mercies of God, we're to view ourselves not too highly. That just seems like a strange outworking of worship. We're not to think too highly of ourselves. But mind you, if you look at that properly, it says, neither are we to think too lowly of ourselves either. Paul goes on, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. And this is our final point. And it's the first example of worship. Think of yourself with sober judgment. Think of yourself and your place among God's people with sober judgment. That's strange worship, isn't it? A mind... Being renewed means we're to measure ourselves in accordance with the faith that God has given us. Now, this isn't saying, by the way, that those with lots of faith here, you should be you know, super proud of yourself, well done. And those of you with little faith, well, you should be ashamed of yourselves. Paul's not talking about the quantity or the, the quality of our faith here. He's saying, understand your place and your role in the kingdom of God through the lens of faith. Understand it that way. 
And what does the lens of faith tell us about our place and our role in the kingdom? Well, it says that we should think of ourselves not as, you know, not arrogantly, not as superior to others. That's what the faith, our faith tells us. We don't overrate ourselves too highly. But neither does faith lead us to despair or to self-loathing or even downplaying our gifts and abilities. What faith does is leads us to measure and value ourselves and each other differently. Look at how we judge ourselves and others when we're looking at things God's way. Look at verse 4. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs all to the others. So a renewed mind, first of all, causes us to see ourselves differently, and at the same time to see each other differently. A renewed mind means I see, first of all, it's not all about me. I'm a part of a body. And I see, second, that I really matter. I'm really needed in this body. Can you see how both of those things are true? That's what a renewed mind does. That's what not conforming to the world does. It's, this is the start of our, our worship of God, living sacrifice. If my hand thinks it's all about, you know, all about my hand, it wants to do all the talking, wants to do all the walking. It wants to be dressed in special clothes, maybe a white glove just on the one hand or something like that. It's weird and it doesn't work. That's kind of what this illustration is showing. And if my hand won't help out the rest of my body, I'm in trouble putting shoes on, tying laces. I need my hand. Paul's point is it's like this for us as a church, as a community that belongs to Jesus. The mercy of God changes how I think of myself and how you think of yourself. I see I'm not wonderful in and of myself, but nonetheless I'm loved by God and I'm gifted by God and I'm gifted for a purpose to serve his people. And at the same time, the mercy of God changes how I think of others. I now think of them as a part of the same body that I'm a part of. I think of them as loved by God and as a way that I can be a living sacrifice to God by serving them. So let me ask you, in view of God's mercy, is this how you view yourself and how you view each other? I mean, I'm just parachuting into Romans today, just parachuting into your church, so I have absolutely no idea the answer to these things. But as you weigh that up, is this how you see yourself? Is this how you see each other? Are you using your gifts and abilities to serve yourself or to serve those around you, people God loves? Or on the other hand, are you sitting on gifts and abilities, not using them? Are you sitting back for whatever reason and not serving the rest of the body? A renewed mind, a, a sober view of self, sees your God-given gifts and, and always thinks of the value that it could give to others. 
And you don't actually need a formal role or title or recognition to be able to do that, to care for others. You just need to value things God's ways. Look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 6. He says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each one of us. And again, this is humbling because our abilities are just given to us. It's also challenging, though, because they're given for a purpose. And so he says, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. And just like before, this isn't saying, you know, the bigger your faith, the more spectacular your prophecy will be. It's not saying that. This this is saying that the gift is to be used consistent with the measure of faith. Prophecy should be in the shape of the faith. It should never be a distortion of the faith. Um, if a gift is ever used in a way that stands outside faith, that you know, runs against the grain of what God has revealed his will to be, then that's not being used in accordance with faith. Using our, our gifts is not the goal in the end. God's mercy drives us to use our gifts with a renewed mind as a living sacrifice, which means he directs how we use them. The goal is always building up the body and not harming it. And we're never given a, a kind of manual on, on exactly what prophecy is in the New Testament and how to go about doing it, which actually means you should always be wary of those who are too confident in telling you what it is and how it should work. But it seems to be some kind of special revelation that God gives us sometimes, or some people sometimes. And Paul's point here, though, is that it's only valuable if it accords with the faith, and never if it's outside of God's instructions in the gospel and scripture. And then look at the other roles that Paul runs through. He says, if it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. And don't you reckon it just sort of seems really obvious? Why even say it? If it's serve, serving. If it's teaching, teach it. If it's encourage, encourage. It, it seems too obvious to even bother speaking. Why does he do it? His point is, if you're gifted with certain roles, certain responsibilities, then get on with the obvious point of the gifts, the obvious purpose of them rather with some kind of self-interest. And these roles and gifts that he gives here, they're just examples. We could equally say, if you're the senior pastor or the associate pastor, don't use your role and your gifts for selfish reasons or to feel significant. If you're a community group leader or a leadership team member or a ministry team leader or a kids leader, roles are not about status, they're about service. They're about recognizing the gifts that we have from God and then using the gifts as a living sacrifice. All of us who are God's people have been gifted in some way. We don't need special roles or titles. We just need to get on with using our gifts. So let me finish today by reminding you of some of the key things that we've we've seen here. And let me put them to you as questions. So will you offer your bodies to God as a living sacrifice? Where do you need to stop conforming to the pattern of this world? Where do you need to keep renewing your mind to see things God's way? 
how are you at risk of thinking too highly of yourself in, in how you serve or how you wish you could serve? And then finally, where are you holding back in serving the body? I hope you've seen today as we've just sort of parachuted into Romans that you really need each other. You really need your church community. And they really need you. And as a community, your church community here needs you to have a sober judgment of yourself. They need that. And you need them all to have a sober judgment of themselves as well. But as I thought about it, I doubt for most of you, the danger is serving in a kind of prima donna way. I mean, I don't get to be here often, but it just didn't strike me as, you know, the word on the street is not that Trinity Church Baraka is a bunch of prima donnas at all. Maybe some of you are show-offs, I don't know, but I doubt that's the struggle for most of you. I suspect you're more likely to want to sit back, maybe because you're more likely to think you're not up to it, not up to taking on certain roles or not up to leading things or many of us just don't feel like we're anything special. But can I just say, your church doesn't need people to lead who feel special. Your church needs people who, who know God's mercy, who recognize that God gives the gifts he gives for a purpose. Your church needs people who see that what God is doing is special. Are you someone who thinks that God's mercy, what he's doing is amazing? Then step up wherever you can to help serve each other, to live for him as living sacrifices. You need each other to do that. You need each other. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to see again and again just how amazing your mercy is uh, help us to wander around it and appreciate it and be overwhelmed by it but not to stop there lord help us in view of your mercies to live for you completely to live the kind of lives where we don't conform to this world around us in in any way the obvious ways and the subtle ways but where we're transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we see things your way and want things your way. Lord, help us to live this out. And in this first example that we've touched on today, that you've spoken to us, Lord, help us to not think of ourselves too highly, to make life all about ourselves or our place in this community all about ourselves. But neither, Lord, to sit back and not serve each other to ignore our own gifts or to downplay them. Lord, help us to recognize the way you've gifted us and to get on with serving because we are needed. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to do everything shaped by your mercy and everything for your glory. And we thank you, Lord, that you are doing this work in us and pray, Lord, that uh, we would joyfully live for you here and always. Amen.